Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome members, guests. I invite you to turn uh, to the letter of, of Jude, second to last book in the Bible and in the New Testament. Uh, we started it last week, and alas, we're ending it this week. Very short book. So turn to Jude. It's one chapter. Uh, we will be considering together verses 17 through 25. Jude 17 through 25. Let's hear God's word together. But you must remember, remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are great and glorious incomparable in every way, incomparable in goodness and love. Father, we are here today because you did not spare even your own son, but you gave him up for us. He shed his blood for us that we, though estranged from you through our sins, might through him be reconciled. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness. We praise you, Lord, for the, your wisdom which you communicate to us through your word. We confess that your power is unmatched. If we are here today in the faith, continuing on in our faith in Jesus Christ, it is because you have kept us, you have preserved us, and we praise you and glorify you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be pleased to speak to us now through Holy Scripture. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would challenge us, rebuke us, correct us where we need correction. And Lord, we pray that you'd bring encouragement where we need encouragement. Lord, and we all need encouragement. We pray that your goodness and faithfulness to us would uh, melt our hearts and cause us to sing your praises and live for you. Amen. Amen. There's, a, there's a historian named Tom Holland who wrote this book called Dominion. And uh, one of the things he, s he says in that book is that one of the unique features of the early Christian community is that it was a community grounded not in a shared background, shared culture, uh, shared traditions, but in a set of ideas. They were committed to a, a unified conception of the truth. Other religions in the ancient world were brought together by, through the practice of the same rituals, maybe they had the same backgrounds, but Christians were distinct in that it was a community grounded in a shared commitment to the truth. Uh, not shared background, but truth was what united them. The truth, of course, saves us. The gospel is what we believe in to be reconciled to God, but it's the truth that also unites us as one people. And for that reason... False teachers po pose in every generation a serious threat to the church. Uh, error not only separates us from God, but separates us from one another. 
And is, is for that reason, we need to be on our guard against these false teachers. It's a theme we've seen again and again in 2 Peter. Uh, it's a theme that we see in Jude as well. Be careful. False teachers in this world arise like weeds. Error is everywhere. Be on your guard. And that's one of the things that Jude will say to us today. Uh, he will warn us, but the thrust of this passage, the emphasis of this passage, is not on being on our guard against false teachers, but positively, it's on what we need to be doing, not just defending against false teaching, but we need to be pursuing God, and we need to be helping others who might be led astray. We're going to look at three things. Uh, number one, watch out for scoffers. Number two, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And number three, keep yourselves in God's love. Keep yourselves in God's love. Verse 17, watch out for scoffers. Uh, Jude reminds them of the predictions made by the uh, apostles of Jesus Christ. And those predictions included the fact that in the last time, scoffers and false teachers will arise. Jude, as in 2 Peter, as in many passages in the New Testament, uh, uses that language of last time or last days or last times that kind of phraseology in the New Testament generally refers not to a narrow snippet of time just before Jesus returns, but to the whole period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So Jude was in the last time. Uh, believers in every generation after him were in the last times, so and we're in the last time, and will be until Jesus returns. And this era of history, this era of salvation history, is characterized by errorists, false teachers, scoffers, those who ridicule the truth claims of the faith. And therefore, the church in every generation has to continue to bear witness to the truth. The church can never simply assume the gospel. It has to contend for the gospel afresh in every generation or risk losing it. That's the time we live in, characterized by scoffers. And these scoffers, Jude tells us, follow their un ungodly passions. Uh, outwardly, they may seem very pious people devoted to the truth, but those who attack the central claims of the faith and the gospel are actually driven not by a humble desire to know truth, but, but by evil desires. We should keep that in mind. Those who assail the faith are not exhibiting a humility before the fact, a zeal for truth, but a pursuit of ungodly drives or desires. These, these scoffers, these, those who ridicule the faith, are those who cause divisions in the church. They seek to win people over to their unbiblical way of thinking, and they create parties in the church. We need to keep in mind that when a believer challenges a scoffer uh, for their scoffing, for their false teaching, it is always the scoffer who is responsible for the division in the church and not the believer who contends for the truth. It's important to recognize this because we live in a world where scoffers and false teachers can take cover under the... Uh, under the umbrella of tolerance. Well, yeah, I think a little bit different than you think perhaps on this point of doctrine, um, but let's just all get along. Let's just tolerate these different beliefs. And within that frame of reference, the, the Christian who loves Christ and loves the gospel and is contending for the faith can look divisive and maybe a little bit narrow when they say, no, you're wrong, and what you're saying is uh, heresy. What you're saying is leading people astray. In that kind of scenario, in this cultural situation, it can look like those who contend for the faith are being divisive. What Jude helps us to see very clearly is that those who attack 
the cardinal truths of the Christian faith, they are the ones who divide the church, not those who contend against them. R.C. Sproul once observed, when apostolic teaching is attacked within the church, it is our duty to stand up for the truth of the scriptures. And if a division comes as a result, the cause of that division must be laid to rest on the shoulders of those who deviate from the apostolic truth, not those who contend against them. So they're divisive. Uh, They might profess faith outwardly and even be connected to the church outwardly, but these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. They're worldly people without spiritual life in them. One of the things that I would, as we begin to transition out of our uh, persistent warning against false teachers, which has been the theme over the last several weeks, uh, one final warning that I would give you is this. There is, it's relatively common to, have, to see the faith attacked in this way. Uh, the Bible contradicts historic Christian teaching. In other words, the Bible is pit against what Christians have believed for centuries and millennia. It's a two-step process. Typically, typically it goes something like this. There is some fundamental Christian doctrine that Christians have held for a long time about the nature of God or his attributes or the deity of Christ or hell or whatever. There's some fundamental Christian truth that they will say, actually, that truth doesn't come out of the Bible. It comes out of pagan philosophy. It comes out of Greek philosophy. So the first thing they do is they disparage the truth. Ah, this Greek pagan thought. The second thing they do is they replace historic Christian teaching with their error. This is what the Bible really says. You see an example of this in a movement called open theism. Um, It began in the 80s and really became a a hot spot for theological debate in the 90s, early 2000s. And uh, it actually began in evangelical circles, as far as I can tell, as far as I know. Uh, Open theism maintains that God doesn't know the future. Maybe he can infer certain things, but God doesn't know the future. For human beings to be truly free, the argument goes, this this is what open theists would say, to be truly free, it's not possible for God to know what will happen tomorrow. And one of the ways they argue for it is step one, the idea that God is omniscient, all-knowing, including the knowledge of the future, that's a Greek philosophical speculation that's polluting our faith And we need to get rid of that alien philosophical influence. Step one, they disparage the truth by attributing it to a Greek pagan idea. Step two, they say, actually what the Bible teaches is God doesn't know the future. And then they try to twist certain verses to make the case. Uh, Well, we want to say very clearly that the Bible teaches everywhere that God knows the future. Uh, Psalm 139, before a word is on our mouth, God already knows what you're going to say. Multiply examples of this. C.S. Lewis once uh, remarked that, Anybody who believes in God, apparently didn't know about open theists, uh, anybody who believes in God knows that he knows what you will do tomorrow. (laughs) If you believe in God at all, you know that he knows the future. Not so, say the open theists. But I use this as an example, I think, of of a relatively common error disparage historic Christianity by suggesting that it it comes from Greek philosophy, and then distort the Bible to say that, that it actually teaches something very different. When somebody plays the Greek pagan philosophy card, and we can't trust what the church has said historically on things like the deity of Christ or hell or the trinity or the attributes of God or the nature of God, be very careful. This is done again and again with not just one doctrine, but many kinds of doctrines. Just be wary. This line of reasoning is actually not that uncommon. 
This is not to say everything in the history of the church is perfect, right? We want to test everything by scripture. But there is a theological consensus that has been established by Christians over centuries and millennia that we should be very, very careful about deviating from, right? We should have a bias towards the, the consensus of the church historically, especially on these fundamental doctrines that concern the nature, the attributes of God, the nature of salvation, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and so on. So I, I share that with you because I think this is something that you may have seen and may well see. Just be aware of it. Second thing then to notice, uh, guard yourselves against scoffers. Be wary. We, li- we live in an age where error grows like weeds in a garden. Uh, we need to be watchful. Number one. Number two, don't just care about yourself. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. The doubters here seem to be people who are wavering between the the biblical teaching and what the false teachers are saying, these scoffers. And notice the attitude that we should have towards these people. Not harsh condemnation from the beginning, you've fallen short of the truth, goodbye. No, mercy, gentleness, patience, let's talk. Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you. Hey, have you, you know, we ask questions, a good way to do it. Pose questions. Love these people. Encourage them uh, to come back. Uh, You ought to care that they're drifting. Don't prematurely judge them as heretics and you've fallen away. Be slow. Be merciful. Pray for them. Encourage them. It, It may well be the case that in verses 22 and 23, Jude actually has three different categories of people, and it's not just one category of people, in which case this would be those least affected by false teaching, those who are still wavering. For those, he says, be merciful, reach out to them, encourage them. Parents, those of you with, with teenagers who might be dabbling in this idea or that idea, don't, don't rush to judgment and condemnation. Mercy, patience, correction, patient teaching is the way that we want to engage those who waver. Save others by snatching them from out of the fire. These are people who are in danger of God's judgment. Understand, when we move towards error away from the gospel, we are moving away from Christ, towards God's judgment, because there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. So this is what's at stake with these people. As they're drifting towards wrong teaching, they're in danger of God's judgment. We should care about them and intervene to invite them back to the truth. And finally, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Those, these perhaps have embraced the error most fully. And uh, notice the balance here. Jude says on the one hand, okay, help them, pray for them, but be careful that you don't lose your own stability, that you're not tainted by their sin. We often think that when we engage other people, uh, influence is one directional. I love Jesus, I want to make an impact, I'm going to try to influence other people for Jesus. That's all well and good, but understand that influence is never monodirectional, one-directional. There's always a two-way influence. And we're weak. We can be tempted. We can be ensnared. And so as we seek to help people and redemptively intervene in their lives, watch yourself. Watch your heart. Because we are all susceptible to drifting. It's a good sober warning. Don't think that because your motives are pure and you want to please Jesus, uh, you're not going to be susceptible to influence from the other direction. Keep a close watch on yourself as you seek to help people. But the bottom line is Jude doesn't just call us to be safe. It is well with my soul. I don't care about anybody else. 
right? It is well with your soul when you care about it being well with other souls, according to this passage, right? You're walking with Jesus, and you are the way you should be when you care about what is happening with your brothers and sisters. And when you see them drifting, it's not a matter of indifference to you. You care deeply about them. You pray for them. You intervene to help them. Following Jesus means helping others follow Jesus. So as we think about false teaching and resisting it, we want to be on our guard, and we also want to help other people avoid it. We owe this to our brothers and sisters, and this is a way of honoring God. The heart of this passage, the central command, verse 21, what else should we be doing in this world full of error? Well, we need to keep ourselves or keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that command, what it looks like to keep yourself is unpacked with three other phrases uh, Jude will show us how we keep ourselves in the love of God. But the first thing we need to see is what does that mean? What does it mean to keep ourselves in the love of God? As we're reading that, the first thing to notice is just a very interesting statement. Is that typically how you talk about keeping yourself in the love of God? What's the language you characteristically use? God's keeping me, right? That's certainly language Jude uses. Look at verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So God's keeping them, and he says the same thing in verse 24, as we'll see. So that's good in biblical language. But here, Jude gives a command, keep yourselves in the love of God. What he's saying is that if our relationship with God is to continue, if we are going to continue in the faith, we need to strive. We need to cultivate that relationship. We need to actively and energetically pursue God. Only those who diligently pursue God will continue in the faith. Those who don't will wander from it. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Pursue God or you will drift. A relationship with God is a bit like a plant, if I can put it this way. Uh, For the plant to remain happy, healthy, you have to water it, expose it to sunlight, and then you get vibrant green leaves and uh, sturdy branches. But if you take that plant out of the sunlight and fail to give it water, what happens to those leaves? They start yellowing, they get brown, they get crispy, edges start to fall off. Uh, It withers. Same thing holds true in our relationship with God. If we are not passionately and diligently seeking after God, we wither. If If we don't seek after God, we drift even into spiritual ruin. Those who don't seek after God, who seek to walk in his ways, who seek to know him more deeply, are drifting towards spiritual ruin, which is where they'll end up if they don't repent. Nobody drifts toward God. You know this about yourself, right? When you have a season of prayerlessness and relative spiritual apathy, you're like that twig in the current. You toss the twig into the current and in the stream and it just goes downstream. You drift away. It takes striving to swim against the current towards God. And those who do not actively and energetically pursue God will fall into spiritual ruin. It's a very sobering passage. You won't drift towards God in continuation in faith. You will drift towards spiritual ruin. I think this verse is really significant because it helps to correct a distortion of the teaching of the New Testament. It is right and true, as I've already noted, to say that God keeps us. The good shepherd takes care of his sheep and keeps them. Verse 1, 
uh, we will be kept by God for Jesus Christ. He will take us by the hand and bring us safely home. That's a glorious truth, and it's biblical. But the question is, how does God keep us? God doesn't keep us apart from our striving after him, but through our striving after him. So God preserves his people, but how does he do it? By empowering them through the Holy Spirit to do verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Look at Paul at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the, the, kept, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I wasn't coasting spiritually on the beach enjoy myself. No, life's a battle. I was striving after God. I was contending for the faith, and now the battle is over. The sign that God is keeping you is that that's your attitude. You are aware of the spiritual dangers in front of you, and you are pursuing God. That's an indication that God is himself is at, at work keeping you. So if you read this passage where it says that God keeps his people, he perseveres them, and they'll get safely home, and you go, oh, that's so great. I don't have to do anything. Done. You misunderstand the New Testament teaching. That's a distortion. Yes, God is keeping you. By keeping you awake and vigilant and praying and seeking after God, that's how we safely get to heaven. Nobody will just sort of drift towards heaven and discover, oh, I made it after all. God kept me. God keeps us by enabling us to keep ourselves in the love of God. What this means is, uh, if you're in a place of spiritual apathy and complacency, you're prayerless, spiritually dead, worldly in your aspirations, you should take no comfort in the truth that God keeps his people. God's okay, I may be completely indifferent to God, but I'm all right, God keeps us. No, no, no. God keeps you by enabling you to pursue him. this is, a, this is a wake-up call. It is a warning to you to realize you're in spiritual danger. Wake up, repent, and pursue God because that's the means that he uses to bring you safely home. If you're spiritually apathetic and could care less about God's commands and walking with him, don't take comfort in the fact that God keeps his people. That's a distortion of the truth. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Well, Jude gives us three ways in which we keep ourselves. Number one, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Faith here refers not to the act of faith, trusting, uh, but to the body of doctrine or truth that we believe in. The usage is parallel to the way Jude uses the word in verse 3 where he writes uh, to us and says that we ought to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the, uh, to the saints. Faith here refers not to our believing, but to that in which we believe, the body of doctrine, the truth. And it would be legitimate to translate this verse, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. The NASB translation does this. Uh, That word building is a metaphor taken from the world of construction. It suggests the church is like a building, right, that that God gradually builds up. Paul uses this metaphor frequently, and that's the metaphor that's being used here. And so the idea is that we ought to build ourselves up on the foundation of the gospel, on the foundation of the central truth claims of Christianity. 
What this indicates then is that we keep ourselves, right? We strive after God, but an important component of being preserved spiritually is that you are in fellowship with other people who help build you up. The command building yourselves up is not to be understood individualistically, like I'm building myself up. The command is is meant to be understood corporately. We are together building ourselves up. We are together building one another up. God keeps us in the faith and in a relationship with himself through the body of Christ, through the church. As we help each other understand the truth of the gospel, as that becomes more and more the foundation of life and we encourage one another to live in light of it, we are strengthened and enabled to persevere. So the church, a community of truth, is essential to our continued progress in the faith. Many years ago, when I was in high school, I went through a rough patch. Those years, but those of you who are in high school, those are turbulent years. Be comforted. That seems to be a pretty universal experience. Um, I was in high school. I was going through a rough patch. And I went to my dad to tell him how I was frustrated and unhappy with God for allowing the suffering into my life and difficulties in my life. I was doubting certain things. And I'm not sure what I expected my dad to say. Uh, maybe a there, there carry on, you know, something warm. But uh, he responded in a way that I didn't expect. He completely turned the tables on me. He says, you have doubts about God? What if he has doubts about you? <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, it was what I needed. It was like a, it was a Romans 9 moment. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? It was what I needed. I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I, I went from care, like wanting relief from my pain and suffering to wanting to be reconciled to God and seeking forgiveness for my bad attitude. Uh, sometimes that's what we need, don't we? It's not about you. It's not even about getting relief. It's about glorifying God, your maker. The question is not how can I be free of this burden, but how can I bring glory to God? It was a profoundly biblical thing to say. I don't know that you say it every time. It worked then. It might backfire on certain occasions where different pastoral counsel is required. But the point is, I needed to hear that. And God used that to rebuke me and remind me it's about him. It's not about me. Uh, That's what we should be doing for one another in the church. Building one another up on this foundation of the faith. Uh, Sin causes us to misperceive things. Our unbelief causes us to misperceive things. And we need brothers and sisters who come alongside of us and say, hey, it's not about you. It's about God's glory. Hey, you're saved by grace, not works. Whatever it is. I want to challenge those of you who are fathers, husbands, start doing this in your household if you're not already. Your family needs to hear God's truth from your lips. Remind your wife that uh, God loves her, or whatever other truth is appropriate in a specific situation. Uh, show your kids the joy, the peace that comes from Scripture, but get in the habit of building up your family with the truth of God's Word. And this should be the culture of our church. This is what I want for CBC. When we show up at community groups, we get excited about sharing what God's teaching us from Scripture. We're constantly building each other up, correcting each other, helping each other. It's a community grounded in truth. It's another way of saying exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4, if you recall. Uh, When we were in Ephesians, there's a crucial verse there that we lingered over. And he says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How do we grow up together? Speaking the truth in love. How do we continue on in the faith, being part of a community where truth is central, where Christ is central, we're constantly speaking that life-giving truth to each other? How do we stay in the faith? By doing that. Two, by praying in the Holy Spirit. 
What is that? Well, first thing to note is that this is not a different kind of prayer from normal prayer. You have prayer and you have praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not what's happening on it. This is a description of Christian prayer. Christian prayer comes into the holy presence of the Father through Jesus Christ, our mediator. And Christian prayer is energized or empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Christian prayer is fundamentally a supernatural activity. You've probably caught inklings of this. There are moments where you feel an unusual burden for someone. You pray for them and discover, oh, they needed prayer. Or you find yourself at times, there's a kind of pressure on your soul to keep praying, and it's almost like you can't do anything else. I'm not saying that those moments happen every day or or even the norm. We catch inklings of that, don't we? Of of the spirits working in our prayers. Uh, That's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. He's energizing our prayers. He's guiding our prayers. And uh, we continue on in the faith. We are spiritually safe. We keep ourselves in the love of God when we pray like this in the Holy Spirit. If you don't have a vigorous life of prayer, where you come before God and you have communion with Him, you are in spiritual danger. There's something deeply wrong with the life uh, of someone who says they're Christian that isn't marked by consistent, serious prayer. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. Prayer can sometimes be a, a, a difficult thing. The great reformer Martin Luther said that prayer is the hardest work of all. We have to deal with our doubts and unbelief and, and spiritual heaviness. But we need to push past that and seek God consistently in prayer. It's one of the means he uses to keep us. One of the benefits of prayer is that it puts life in perspective, doesn't it? We see things more clearly when we spend time in the presence of God. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on prayer, observes, prayer in all its forms, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and petition, reorients your view and vision of everything. Prayer brings new perspective because it puts God back into the picture. Merely addressing God verbally about our needs, fears, and hopes, concerns, questions, perplexities, and sins almost immediately forces us to think differently about them. Have you had that experience? There's some unexpected turn of events that fills you with anxiety and fear and worry, and you go into your room, you close the door behind you, and you begin to pour out your heart to God and pray for his mercy and direction and guidance. And you walk out of that room and you have more composure, more peace. What's happened? You've gotten perspective. Initially, God wasn't in the picture, wasn't part of the equation. And so you were unsettled and full of anxiety. But having brought this burden to the Lord and prayed through it, you find deeper peace. Why? You you now see things with God at the center. Prayer gives us perspective and enables us to continue on in the faith. And third, what do we need to keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, we need hope waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. When Jesus returns, that will be a day of mercy for God's people. And on that day, we're going to get the life that we have always wanted. This life is a shadow of real life. What will it be like to have life undiluted by sin and guilt and sorrow? Well, Jesus is coming back, and he will give to his people eternal life. Judah's saying that if we want to continue in the faith, to continue in our walk with God, we need, be, we need to be constantly drawing on that future day, 
finding comfort and encouragement in it, and not, not allowing our spiritual sight to be limited to this present world, but looking always to the return of the king. If you want to persevere, then we need hope. So Jude has called us to strive after God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But in, verses 20, in verse 24, he balances the scales. He gives us the other side of the coin. Uh, verses 24 and 25 constitute one of the most wonderful expressions of adoration for God anywhere in the New Testament. And it begins in verse 24 with a description of the God who is being adored or worshipped. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Notice, keep yourselves in the love of God. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And this is a description not, a, not just of a potential thing that God can do. It's a description of what God will do. Again, compare it with verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This is where our confidence finally is, not in ourselves. Yes, we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God, but where our heart rests, where we have peace, where our confidence is, is in God, who takes us, as it were, by the hand and walks with us through this life, helps us face every adversity, temptation, and trial, and brings us safely home. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. When God's undiluted greatness and majesty is displayed to the world, we're not going to shrink back in fear. We will on that day be without any sin, without any guilt. The last residue of sin will have been burned away. It will be a day where we are blameless and spotless before God in ways we are not now, but will be then. And his return will be a day of great joy. Is that how you think about the second coming of Jesus Christ as a day of great joy? In other words, on that day, if you belong to Jesus, you're not going to nervously walk to the throne filled with self-reproach and guilt, thinking about all the terrible things you did and didn't do. I hope he accepts me. Like, that's not the picture. The picture is when Jesus comes, we will have peace and we will know joy. We will see our king and we will be happy. Those internal hiccups, that sense of guilt and falling short that mars this life won't be there. We will be happy in the presence of our king. This was for me beautifully captured uh, by Sinclair Ferguson in one of the talks he gave at Together for the Gospel 2022. I had the privilege of attending that conference. Uh, and I remember the way he ended his message. It, it struck a chord with me. Uh, he said, I can't help but thinking that when I see him, I will say with tears in my eyes, I'm sorry, Lord. But scripture tells us that he will take us in his arms and say, there is no sorry, Lord, here. There is only this crown of unfading glory, and I'm going to put it on your head. That's the picture we have in Jude. There's no sorry, Lord, here. There are no pangs of conscience and guilt. There's only the king welcoming you into his presence. God is going to keep us for that day. Think about the tremendous confidence that we should have if we believe that. We don't know what trials, temptations, and horrors we're going to face between now and that glorious day. 
but we do know that he will hold us fast, that he is our rock, and he will walk with us every step of the way. And so we don't need to be paralyzed with anxiety and fear as we contemplate the future. He will keep us. As the contemporary hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. That's where our confidence should be. Consider also the encouragement, by the way, that this holds out for us, for those uh, loved ones who are now older in age and their memories beginning to fade. Perhaps can't remember the past well or the immediate past. They don't know, recognize who you are. Perhaps they don't even quite know who they are. Their mind begins to diminish with old age. The encouragement of this passage for them is that even when our grip on Christ grows old and frail, his grip on us is unflinching and firm. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 46.4, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. God will keep us from when we, has kept us from when we came into this world from our mother's womb. And he's going to hold us by the hand until even gray hairs, even when we can't think clearly anymore, he continues to keep his people. That's the Savior that he is. What should our response be to all of this, to the God who keeps us from stumbling and will present us blameless before his presence? Verse 25, worship, doxology, adoration, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. When we see the goodness of God revealed in Jesus, it's a kind of spiritual pressure inside of us. And the only outlet for that pressure is praise and adoration. When we consider the goodness of God, when we contemplate his greatness, the response is a whole-souled expression of praise. Jude here is not saying that God would become something he isn't, that he would become glorious, majestic, have dominion, authority, and so on. Jude is simply ascribing or attributing to God what is already in him, what already characterizes him. He's already glorious and majestic. And Jude is simply ascribing that to God. When we see God for who he is and we see what he's done for us, the appropriate response is praise, worship, and adoration. That's an index of where you are in your relationship with Jesus. The more grateful you are for Jesus Christ, the more praise and thanksgiving there will be. Is that a persistent note in your life? Is there a delight in the Lord that expresses itself in fervent singing? Yes, singing. And thanksgiving and prayer. And in a myriad of other ways. Is this the heartbeat of your life? This is the sacred center of, of the Christian life. To behold the greatness and goodness of the triune God and to offer, offer him unqualified, undiminished praise and adoration. Let's do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that from the moment of our arrival into this world to the present, we have been kept. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our faithful shepherd, who has been with us 
through the joys and sorrows of this life. Lord Jesus, thank you for your compassion and your gentleness toward us all these years. And as you've been with us, we confess and believe that you will continue to be with us to the end. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Amen.